the most recent surveys I've read about millennials have simply said to recruit them, we may need to serve them breakfast in bed. The most indulged and perhaps privileged generation we know, our choice, be frustrated or acknowledge inclusion helps us grow. Birth with the mobile phone in their hand instead of a rattle, with the mindset not to take orders, but be fit for life's battle. Often choosing minimalism over being beheld to salary, stock, and severance. They have love for life, friends, and experience, and, and to brands they show no reverence. They often say, I expect much from myself. Physical papers, not an option. I engage authentically and reject your marketing plans for my adoption. I will not be acquired. I freely join as an opportunist. And with unlimited information in my hands, my point of view is the shrewdest. I work to fulfill missions and I don't really care about your market share and your limitations to deliver instantly make me feel that you're not there. I like to work on teams with no routines and keep things fresh and new. And if I deliver now, then I want it now. Don't make me wait for an annual performance review. During my tenure at J.P. Morgan Chase, I was surrounded by incredible leaders and mentors, not to mention top talent. Among them was James Rousseau Sr. James was always a great supporter and champion of the digital workplace projects that I was managing, along with those of my colleagues. Following a recent catch-up over a virtual coffee, I just couldn't wait to introduce James to the Digital Workplace Impact audience with the thought that he could be a source of inspiration during highly challenging times. By way of background, James has been helping leaders achieve sustainable business growth and impact for well over 20 years now. In addition to J.P. Morgan Chase, James has run a series of senior roles at Allstate and Legal Shield. And during that time, James has created and guided a plethora of high-performing teams through delivering double-digit growth, mergers and acquisitions, offshoring and outsourcing initiatives, startup activities, and establishing well over 300 partnerships. Nowadays, James is the CEO of the CoreLink Solution, which is a nonprofit organization committed to revitalizing communities through programs that empower people to reach their potential. And if that's not enough, James has also authored a book called Success on Your Own Terms. Join me now for an inspiring conversation with James as we explore the topic of how to score big with hybrid leadership in an endemic age. Happy listening. So James, I am just delighted to welcome you to the Digital Workplace Impact Podcast Studio. Thank you for having me. Of course, we had a wonderful shared tenure at J.P. Morgan Chase, and one of the things that always struck me was that you were a great supporter and great champion of various technology initiatives, not only ones that I was involved with, but those of other colleagues as well. And we recently had a chance to catch up over a virtual coffee, and it just struck me that your insights around leadership are ones that could benefit so many people on an individual team and organizational level. And of course, I couldn't wait to bring you into the studio as a source of inspiration during very challenging times. I'm so honored. I, I hope I live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So with the idea that you've been mentor and, and champion for many, I think a good place to start our conversation is to ask you, who's been your greatest influence, whether that's a, a mentor or a senior leader? And of course, uh, when you talk a little bit about them, it would be really interesting to hear how they informed who you are as a, a leader today. You know, it's it's so funny when uh, th- and thank you, first of all, for having me. And thank you secondarily for sending some of the questions in advance. I can give them some thought. Um, I've had so many mentors in my life that I value. It's very hard to narrow it down to one who made the most impact. I mean, literally five years ago, Nancy, I had I'd done a I had, I'd done a presentation around leadership and I put on a slide all the people who had an impact on my life. And it was at least 30 names that included like Anya Tomko, Ed McGann and people such as that, that we both know. But the the person who jumps out as um, just being just from a longevity perspective as well is a gentleman named Joe Jankowski. He was my very first manager. He was a manager at the time. I did not want a job. (laughs) Um, It was, you know, it was a summer. I was 14 years old. Uh, My mother had declared she was no longer going to financially support my hobbies because I would jump in and jump out of them. And she said, if you want to do this next hobby, you need to figure out how to financially make it happen yourself. And so I get this summer job through the Boys and Girls Club and I get assigned to this hardware store. And I kind of go, you know, kicking and screaming to this store to report the first day. And it's owned by this gentleman named Joe Jankowski. And he becomes this unbelievable mentor to me. I think I'm just going to cut keys and learn how to do some things in the store. And he teaches me, Nancy, everything from top to bottom. I assume, again, ring the register, maybe do some inventory. He teaches me everything. Inventory, how to open and close the store. They own an alarm company. He teaches me that. But then he also leans into my personal life. When I turn 16, I get my first car, which was a beat up 73 Volkswagen. No window in the back of it. One of the fenders was falling off. He says, get the car, bring it to the back of the store, pull it in the garage in the back. We'll, 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 we'll fix it up. We will fix it up. He helps me fix the car up. And uh, just by just by what I said, I was there from 14 to probably 18. So when I turned 16, he made me assistant manager and let me open and close the store on Saturdays independently. I come there after school and he'd leave and I close the store. So he was a mentor who really helped me establish. Um, I, I don't want to say work ethics, but help me turn my work ethics into dem- demonstrable product, if you will. Right. Um, so that that's someone who I learned a lot from. I picked up a couple of other things like one showing you how to be a utility player, meaning you learned all of the different elements of running the business. And when I yeah. think about our interactions, uh, you were always very hands on at the same time as mm. challenging us to think about what we needed to do to deliver maximum impact with whatever projects we were working on. So the, kind of the interesting leadership balance of rolling your sleeves up and getting in there with your team, as in helping you rebuild your VW bug. Yes. But then also giving people exposure so that they can think about all of the aspects of the business holistically jump in where needed, provide support where needed, but then also leverage that knowledge to make things 
better, add more value with time. So what a great story. And so, of course, um, you've had a very varied career. J.P. Morgan Chase, of course, is where we met, but you've gone on to work for a number of other major organizations and, and have actually done some things on your own steam. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But the next topic I was really hoping to delve into with you is this new book that you've written that I think of as an approach book. Um, it's called Success on Your Own Terms. And I would love to hear a little bit about what inspired it and and what some of the core messages are, because I think it's very on topic. Yeah. So, you know, I always tell people at the onset, I never intended to write a book. <laughs> Let me just say that. So so here's what happened. I was mentoring a lot of people at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And I don't know about you, but, you know, when you're mentoring, oftentimes one, I always felt like to whom much is given, you know, much is required. I'm not going to say no to mentoring. So my, I think my system would say, you know, look, you, you, you don't have any any more time make time. We'll figure it out. And as I was mentoring more and more people, I wanted to be more consistent and ensure I was helping thematically. And I started taking notes and those notes just amassed into this large word document. And so over time, you know, this word document just continued to grow and these themes started to evolve. And I'm, I'm talking about the, the document to a good friend, Billy Dexter over lunch uh, in Chicago. And Billy says, I think, I think that's a book. I said, no, Billy, that's not a book. I mean, it's just a bunch of notes. He said, well, do you mind if I introduce you to a book coach? I said, that's fine. I meet with the book coach, Nancy. Then she says, James, that's a book. I go, come on, Melissa. This is not a book. It's a, it's a lot of notes. It's themes right around, you know, how to embrace your passion, how to perform, how to, uh, you know, promote yourself in the right ways, how to make it through an organization. She said, no, I think it's a book. You mind if I introduce you to an agent? Fine. She introduces me to the agent. The agent goes, yeah, this is this is a book. No, it's not a book. He says, you mind if I share it with some publishers? He comes back Nancy, in three weeks with two publishing opportunities. And I sign with the publisher and we start the book. Now, of course, when you do that, of course, what you think is the book is is done. It's nowhere near done, of course. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we start the process of really getting the book done based on the commitments and the contract and all those different things. But that's the story of how the book came to be. It was really around me trying to codify the themes I picked up from folks. And as they were pulling different things out of my head, trying to help them make sense. Right. And I remember distinctively once at uh, JP Morgan Chase, I was at 201 North Walnut Street and car services at the time. And my assistant kept saying, I can't take any more people on. And I said, you know, uh, let me try to do some group mentoring. And I was, I said, you know, I, I have to eat every day anyway. I'm going to every Thursday, I'm going to go to the cafe for breakfast. And I just sent a note to everyone and said, listen, I'll be there for breakfast. Don't feel obligated. But if you want to show up, that'd be wonderful. I'll be on the second floor of the calf. And maybe the first time six, eight people showed up and I introduced everyone. And I remember saying to them, listen, many of you come, you all come to me, but I, I guarantee you this, you all have the answers. Sometimes it just takes more intent focused dialogue. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is about. The next time, 
12 people showed up the next time, maybe 18 people showed up. And I hope, I hope they still do this because at some point, you know, I, I just try to increasingly make it less about me and more about the intent of the dialogue. That sounds extremely powerful. And I think in an environment where there's so many unknowns to be able to use the collective brain trust to work through the challenges of the moment can be something that um, not only gives reassurance, uh, when I think about how DWG members come together, they say very much the same things. To be able to find your tribe, your peers, who are thinking about the same issues day to day, and to have a chance to put them out on the table, A, get reassurance that you're facing the same things, but then B, start to tap each other to share your thinking and and challenge each other by asking some really smart questions, and then the answers flow. Yes, totally. Totally. Our CEO and founder, Paul Miller, is, is about to release the second edition of his manifesto for the Decade of Courage. And one of the big themes within the manifesto is hybrid leadership. And I thought it would be interesting to not only draw upon your book, but but also some of your life lessons as a professional to really explore what you think it takes to be a purpose-driven leader, really in the age of hybrid working. And, and I think it would be helpful to get your perspectives along two different angles. Of course, there are those who are leading the hybrid workplace initiatives within their organization. And then there are those who are leading in that space. And, you know, gone are the days of managing by walking around. People need to present themselves differently. So reimagine that breakfast scenario that used to happen in person. And now you need to think about the fact that you've got some people working in the office. You've got some people who are remote. You've got other people who are more nomadic in in how they get things done every day. So let's talk a little bit about both angles, starting with those who are leading the hybrid workplace initiatives and their organizations and their teams. So think about, you know, back in the day when uh, when I was working with um, Alex Zawadowski, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I thought about this one, because and you can tell me if I'm wrong on the metaphor, but it made me think about um, working in the business or on the business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'd actually prefer to start with in the business first, if, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, and so here's how I think about it. And I'll try to limit both of these to three to three thoughts in the business. I think about um, to be purpose driven, to connect purpose better than you ever have before. And a lot of times when we talk about organizational purpose, we think that the manifesto and the tagline and such often are enough and we have to really connect it to a perpen, a person's individual purpose. How do you take that next step to help that person see how it connects to them? And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I think for, for years, one of my favorite interview questions has always been towards the end of an interview for any role you're working um, working on with me, plan to work for uh, in my organization I'm responsible for is, hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, you get tomorrow... Five million dollars, untold fortune, uh, unspeakable fortune. Right. 
you take the trips you always wanted to take. You buy your parents a home they always wanted. You get yours. You take care of your cousins, everyone, okay? And you've got enough money for the rest of your life. How are you spending your time? And invariably, Nancy, there's a wicked smile that always comes across a person's face about, you know, I would do X. And if they don't have an answer, you go, okay. And if you knew you could not fail, what would it be? And you may get the answer and you go, okay, great. Awesome. Awesome. I love the smile of the energy. Talk about it for a while. Go, great. Tell me how this role that you're going to take connects with that. And obviously there's going to be varying degrees of whether it's connected to it or not, right? Sometimes it's spot on, right? <laughs> it could be a finance role and they go, great. I want to come up through the finance channel. I will be, you know, doing this kind of finance consulting thing. And sometimes it's, I'd be building homes. Okay, awesome. So sounds like we need to make sure we get you to our Habitat for Humanity volunteerism effort, right? But what if it's something not in the organization at all? How am I as a leader going to make sure that we are giving you the opportunity to do some of that. Because if if that's the thing that gets that energy going, right, I need to make sure that you see this organization as helping you along that purpose journey. If that's what you feel most connected to. And it's funny when we talk to leaders, when I talk to leaders a lot of times, when we talk about this conversation of individual purpose. Many are afraid to have it because they believe the organization may not fulfill it. And what I say to folks is, if you do any of the readings on any employee engagement work, avoiding a conversation doesn't help you. It just leaves you leaving that person potentially disengaged as opposed to having the conversation, unearthing what the purpose is, figuring out the connection to or lack thereof to organizational purpose and getting that purpose person connected to it in any way you can. So that's number one. For me, number two is to your point of MBWA, management by walking around, depending on what type of leader you have been. And I know me personally, <laughs> this has been one of the toughest things about the pandemic for me and not being in the corporate space. I derive a lot of energy from being in the room with folks. I love uh, project rooms. I love walking and touching the board and moving the sticky notes around. I love war rooms, not necessarily what creates a war room necessarily, but I love <laughs> being in the war room and working on projects and whatnot. And I think if you're, again, in the hybrid workspace and work workplace and you are that person who creates energy that way or derives energy that way, I think you have to be cognizant of how you emulate the same in the hybrid environment. In other words, don't run from the fact that that's how you create the energy or derive energy or both, but look for ways to emulate the same in a hybrid environment. And then the last thing I would say is, if you haven't already made this shift, this is the time that it's not a nice to have, but a must do that you you use a lot more we and a lot less I. You need to speak in we terms as much as you possibly can in less than I terms. It is not about us as individual leaders. It has to be about the collective we. You have to think co-create, collaboration, co-create, collaboration, co-create, collaboration. So that's what I would say about the in the workplace leader. For the those leading the workplace kind of on the organization, I think it's it's not too dissimilar. I think it's the... Um, the PVM mandate is the same purpose. Vision mission has to be crystal clear 
and to help those on the ground in the workplace leaders disseminate it and, and really get it through the organization. But I also think there's a thing where when you're not in the workplace, it's easy to be disconnected from what's actually happening on the ground, right? And you want to see things get executed a certain way in the same pace and the same how and, and everything works. And, and what I've said to folks is, here's how I would think about things in this moment. When it comes to purpose, vision, and mission, the what, the why, and the who are constants, right? The the, the why we do what we do as an organization is a constant. Why, why we show up, the what we deliver, our product or our service that people pay us for, and the customer, the who we're going to deliver it to. But man, we shouldn't we have a lot of flexibility on the where and the how? I mean, shouldn't we have a lot of flexibility about where and how, as long as we deliver the what, the why, and for the who? And that's what I would say to those kind of on, right, leading the hybrid workplace. Yeah, it's all about ensuring that you give people the maximum flexibility nowadays so that they can deliver their personal best um, as part of a team, whatever team structure that is at a division level, at a core group level, et cetera. Absolutely. One of the things that I find to be a consistent challenge among whether you call them hybrid workplace leaders, digital workplace leaders, is um, that the art of storytelling the connection to the so what can often be a challenge. And I think that the last year has really clarified the purpose of the digital workplace as the essential mm. workplace and mm-hmm. suddenly put it on the board as one of the strategic assets of organizations. So some of the storytelling has been done by circumstance for this group of leaders, and I'm thinking about who, who our listeners are. You're primarily talking about digital workplace leaders, yes. stewards, champions, and their teams. And so just thinking about this leadership discussion that we've just had, what do you think are the most important skills for people to hone over the next two to three years as hybrid working matures? Yeah, I mean, you you just started with one of them. Uh, it's funny that you say that is the the purpose conversation, sharing it in your own voice. I, I'm not sure you can overstate the the importance of authenticity for both um, the current generation and the I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but let's just say millennials and Gen Z. Authenticity has to be one of the top three things of importance to them, and so sharing purpose. Uh, and why you show up every day in your own voice and to your point, storytelling and such, I think is, is, is one of those things. Um, number two for me feels like constantly learning how to learn intellectual agility. I mean, the cycle of change is brutally fast. And so getting wed to any particular methodology and such feels like it's I would have caution about getting wed to things versus being in the, in the mindset of we're agile and you have to be intellectually agile. And the third thing is building teams in the age of let's call it individualism, where there's a lot more, you know, psychologically, people have a lot more um, thirst in some cases, right, to test the waters as an individual because 
Many are doing it and showing that it can be done. And so how do you build teams when that is a prevailing psyche for a lot of folks, right? And so what what can you do? What can you learn? How do you simulate different things and those attitudes and such and be a leader who touches those people, shows your care, shows your interest, and uh, embraces, right, those thoughts in their dialogue and, and creates space for it. As an example, uh, in the Allstate environment, one of the things that that happened uh, was the really the, the up, upbringing of entrepreneurship, right? Helping people who had an entrepreneurial mindset who wanted to maybe do something. And the, the team said, you know, we need to figure out how to how to really let that grow here. How do we mine that and harvest it here so people don't have to leave the company to sow the entrepreneurial roots? I think that's so well said. And and keying off of the last theme around individualism, I think it's important to to talk about natural transition points. So when you look back on your career, ultimately you went from go-getter to go-giver. So you were someone who endeavored to build a successful career as an individual. And then over time, you became hyper-focused on empowering and enabling others to reach their full potential. And so I'm curious to explore first, you know, what was the catalyst for that shift for you? And then we can talk a little bit about how that applies to this audience. Yeah. So I, I think I grew up as a, you know, a kid in a rough area in Philly who, <laughs> Nancy, I was a kid. I was a kid in school with glass, thick glasses. I was a safety. It was kind of a nerd, but I played sports and, you know, I had all these things going on. And as I started to gain some success, that one wasn't the typical success coming out of my neighborhood. Um, in the corporate environment, you would hear words such as you're special. And initially that felt good. Right. But it didn't take long before it did not feel good because it felt to me, wait a minute, special means you don't expect it from this, quote unquote, blueprint, so to speak. Right. And I think it triggered for me. Wait a minute. Shouldn't the system be able to crank this out? Shouldn't the process be able to crank this out? And I think it for me, help create a systems thinking, so to speak, before I think systems thinking was a thing. And I'm today, I'm, I don't profess to be a guru on systems thinking, but it, it really helped turn a crank on, okay, how, how do I build something that helps people go through a system and come out more successful? Actually, to the extent that in my last job at Legal Shield, I created what I call the system of success for B2B sellers. If you were going to come into the company no matter what walk of life you came from and you said you wanted to be a B2B seller, it was called the system of success that you went through. And it was a very uh, regimented program. And so that's, I think that's part one that, you know, I saw that. I think part two, you know, Nancy, honestly, I'm a, I'm an Enneagram too. <laughs> I'm a giver. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's in my, just in my DNA. And then part three, which I just talked about, I, I just became more, enamored with systems. How do we create systems? And I think that's, that's what led me increasingly to go to shift my mindset from initially, if I'm honest, my thought was 
I need to continue to grow in executive ranks in large companies so I can help change policies and such to help people be more successful. So I'm in a more influential role. I have some authority. I'm, you know, just like you were called, J.P. Morgan Chase, I'm on a diversity council. I'm trying to help lead. You know, I'm running HR service delivery. I have a team of 200 to 400 people at any given time based on mergers and so on and so forth. That's great. And then you get to a certain point. You go, you know, this is good. Then I go to Allstate as the president of a business unit. I go, great, more opportunity to impact people. I go to Legal Shield as president of B2B and then come chief commercial officer. Now I'm impacting thousands of salespeople. Then I say to myself, you know, and actually in between there, it'd be great to leave the organization and run my own organization that can impact at an even greater scale. And I think those were the um, those were the kind of the, the points on the journey, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So let's put a little bit of a lens on this conversation about being a go-giver versus uh, a go-getter at a time when leaders are dealing with more well-being challenges than ever, starting to deal with the repercussions of the great resignation, a whole new host of diversity challenges posted, uh, posed by uh, hybrid working. The list goes on. Share your thoughts about what's critically important for digital workplace leaders to make that shift from go-getter to go-giver to be able to actually scale their impact in the organization. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that is probably the million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> that's why I'm asking yeah, if, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I had that one minted, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so last year I was doing a presentation, and I'm a big fan of acronyms because they just help me remember things. And so I wrote this acronym called SCORE, and I'll I'll tell you what it means. Uh, SCORE S C O R E. The S is for self-care. And so what I said to leaders during that conference was um, you need to give yourself a minute for some self-care. Like like the, the first thing is to recognize the environment that you're in and what it means for a leader. Right. As leaders, we expect a lot from ourselves. We expect great results. We expect them not just once, but on a repeated basis. And we often expect them to be transformational. Right. Mm-hmm. What gives us in many cases, the opportunity to do that is a sense of predictability around a number of things, right? So the global environment changes a lot, man, things in our industry changes a lot, but pandemics and such are just, wow, that that's a different gradient of change. And so acknowledge what's taking place. I mean, even for sports teams, right? They, they, they go to, you know, whatever, 72 games a year, but when they get to the basketball court, the dimensions of the court are always the same, <laughs> Right? They know the height from the floor to the basket, so on and so forth. It's the same. Imagine the basket in the court moving all the time. What if it always moved? What if when it got to each city, it kept moving? That's how you need to, I think, think about and embrace the level of change you're talking about. The basket's literally moving as you're trying to shoot. So, so one, self-care. Put on your mask first. There's a reason they say that on the airplane. You can't help others if you don't put your zone. So do some self-care, figure out what that means for you. If that's stepping away, if that's meditation, if that's a walk on the course of the day, if you're, a, you know, 20 pages of book reader each day, whatever that is to take care of yourself, do that. The C in SCORE stands for community care. 
give permission to everyone else for self-care. You may think they're going to do it, the folks on your team. Oftentimes, they won't do it unless they're following your lead and or you give instruction to do so. <laughs> you need to, you know, I always say to, to, to leaders, there's four C's we have to be, a coach, a counselor, a cheerleader, and a confidant every day. You've got to be a coach to help get them moving down the track. You've got to be a cheerleader to cheer them on in public. You've got to be a confidant to help hear them when they, they need it. And you've got to be a um, caretaker sometimes, right? And just listen. And you'll need to do that and help move them down the path and say, it's okay for you to take care of yourself. The O, the objectives, it's what I said earlier, remembering the why, the what, and the who, and working with your team on where and how and telling them, we can be flexible. We can decide to do things differently in this moment. We will do what's right to do. And that leans right into the R. Be brutal on the R, reconciliation, about stop, start, and continue. This is a time to, I say to folks, sometimes do a taxonomy. Literally write down all the things you do. And because what happens sometimes we do stop, start, continue, Nancy, is we like do the list of the stop, do the list of starting new things, but we really don't analyze what we're allowing to continue. Uh-huh. You should affirmatively, and I'm sorry, you should be affirming everything on the continue list. Do we really need to continue those things? Like take a level of radical candor here and last execute, plan, do review, but do so in shorter cycles. Don't allow, like when, when you think about Sometimes when we do things, we, we do things and every Friday we check in because of what we're in right now in digital workplaces or hybrid workplaces and digital professionals, et cetera. The cycles are shorter. So that plan to review cycle, just think about shorter times and checking in with people. You don't have to be overbearing, et cetera, but they could be quick stand up meetings and whatnot. But but make yourself available, checking in with people. And again, with the idea, you're going to be agile and be flexible. And that's been that's been my advice to folks The the. So score. The second thing is in all of that, we have to listen differently than ever before, in my humble opinion, to to the point of empathy. And my theory is he has been this and working with a number of leaders. The distance from hearing and empathy is probably four steps removed. There's like there's hearing, then there's listening, then there's effective listening, then there's empathy. Empathy is literally defined as I feel what you feel. Mm-hmm. And you have to just think about that for a second. That takes a minute. Leaders need to lean in and develop empathy with their folks. I think that's a very powerful set of guideposts. And, and I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is the level of emotional intelligence that we're asking people to undertake is higher than ever before. Sure. And the other thing that I see as a challenge right now alongside that is making time for innovation. So yes, there are the mm. things you want to start, stop, and continue. But but one of the, the added layers I would throw into the mix is making sure that you create the space to innovate as well. No doubt about it. I, you know, when, when, when we talk about that stop, start, and continue list, the it, it's almost like the list you've been waiting to do. Okay, the, st- the stop list has things on it, like the uh, if anybody's seen the movie Office Space, the TPS reports. Okay, things that you know you should have stopped doing a long time ago, and now it's time to call it. It's time to just say it out loud. But the start list has items that 
have been maybe specked out, maybe had a project charter done, maybe not. But, you know, they will make a meaningful difference. But no one's had the time before. They could be, to, 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 to your point, tremendously innovative. They're going to create boatloads of efficiency, but they may have had political wires attached to them. Um, who, who knows what it may have been? But all bets are off right now. It's a different time. So put them on the table. To your point around the emotional intelligence piece, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of asking more for people, um, more from people. And it's also a time, Nancy, and my humble opinion to not rely on segmentation to understand people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And for those who are reaching to understand, share a bit more about that. Well, when we when we categorize people in buckets of millennial or Gen Z or other diversity buckets of race, gender, etc., you have to understand a person for who that person is. I remember talking to a group of HR leaders uh, a year or so ago who were, oh, my God, they were going through the whole thing on millennials are killing our workspace. Right. They're so hard to work with and manage. And I shared with them my research <laughs> after spending time. And if you don't mind, I'll share with you a couple point sound bites, if that's OK. Of course, please. So and it's, and it's in the form of a small poem. Here it goes. The most recent surveys I've read about millennials have simply said to recruit them, we may need to serve them breakfast in bed. The most indulged and perhaps privileged generation we know, our choice, be frustrated or acknowledge inclusion helps us grow. Birth with the mobile phone in their hand instead of a rattle, with the mindset not to take orders, but be fit for life's battle. Often choosing minimalism over being beheld to salary, stock, and severance. They have love for life, friends, and experience, and, and to brands they show no reverence. They often say, I expect much from myself. Physical papers, not an option. I engage authentically and reject your marketing plans for my adoption. I will not be acquired. I freely join as an opportunist. And with unlimited information in my hands, my point of view is the shrewdest. I work to fulfill missions, and I don't really care about your market share. And your limitations to deliver instantly make me feel that you're not there. I like to work on teams with no routines and keep things fresh and new. And if I deliver now, then I want it now. Don't make me wait for an annual performance review. And when I said that, (laughs) their eyes in the room (laughs) were... Uh, uh, and so we talked about it and it was a, such an interesting conversation. I said, yeah, they, you know, they want the same things we want. They just have a different way of approaching it. Right. And so I said, so juxtapose that with how we've acted corporately. Here's the second part. We create purpose and mission, values and vision, hold two day off sites to finalize those decisions, then objectives and goals to ensure we achieve it. Cascading communication plans so all understand and believe it. Then the operating model. So we execute with precision with the people infrastructure, with job families and positions, detailed job descriptions with all these bullet points that matter, compensation plans and long term career ladders. And now the scene is set and we are so happy and elated and we want to recruit people into this mold that we've created. I think sometimes it's more carrot and sticks, more mortar and bricks. And when we consider who we're talking about, I'm not sure it's going to stick. And then we talked about that. And they said, you know, yeah. And that's when, you know, we had more of this conversation around co-creation. 
more co-creation. And Kiefer Raji's really been leading the, the the charge on this idea of, you know, co-creation and, uh, you know, leadership without authority. It was the book that he published, uh, which, you know, tagline around co-creation. And to your point around emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, higher levels of emotional intelligence allow you to have the comfort to be vulnerable and invite people into that space to co-create with you on, on every level. Always insightful, James. What have we forgotten? I don't think we have forgotten anything. You were so, you're so well in preparation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all about telling a story, isn't it? Yes, it is. And so just a final reflection for me is that one of the most powerful things I could have done leading up to this conversation was to actually hear you read your book, Success on Your Own Terms. Mm. It, it felt like you were talking to me personally as I was on my nightly walks. And I took so much away from it. And it's something I highly encourage people who are thinking about what they need to be motivated next given everything that's going on around us. A little dose of James Rousseau in your life uh, can be incredibly uplifting. And so I just want to thank you for taking some time to come and chat with me for the benefit of our listeners. And I certainly look forward to continuing to stay connected with you just as we've done over the years. Uh, But truly... A wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, James. Oh, I'm so honored. And thank you so much for that. And thank you for listening to the book. Um, I'm sure my voice got tiring after a while. So thank you for enduring. And I thank you for the, uh, the endorsement. That is so humbling. Thank you. We create purpose and mission, values and vision, hold two-day off-sites to finalize those decisions, then objectives and goals to ensure we achieve it, cascading communication plans so all understand and believe it, then the operating model so we execute with precision with the people infrastructure, with job families and positions, detailed job descriptions with all these bullet points that matter, compensation plans and long-term career ladders. And now the scene is set and we are so happy and elated and we want to recruit people into this mold that we've created. I think sometimes it's more carrot and sticks, more mortar and bricks. And when we consider who we're talking about, I'm not sure it's going to stick. Digital Workplace Impact is brought to you by the Digital Workplace Group. DWG is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry, not only through membership, but also benchmarking and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com.